Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. We are going to pick up in Leviticus 21, which is right where we left off, and we will dig in. The context, just so we, if anybody missed, we have um, Leviticus as a book. And I think tonight, if we have time, I kind of want to end with kind of an overview piece too. Leviticus is a book of worship or what God expected when it came to worship when we were doing things. So the context of this is that the first half of Leviticus is really God's intention for Israel. And the second half of the book has been so far about the administrative practices for the priests and how the priests are going to do things. So um, as, as we look at God's intention for Israel and how they did it, chapters 1 through, through 15 kind of set up the sacrifices, the priesthood, what's right and wrong, what people should eat, what they shouldn't eat. And then chapter 16 sits in the middle as this idea of atonement, right in the middle of the book. And then 17 through or 27, which is the end of Leviticus, is going to be what holy people look like and really how the priesthood should be encouraging Israel to look more holy. Um, and the justification for that throughout Leviticus has been the reason why we want to be holy is because God is holy. And another piece of context that really hit me this week is God is progressively moving into the camp. So he starts as they come out of Egypt in front of them and behind them. And then he's up on the mountain of Sinai and there are border stones that keep people away from him. And then he moves down outside of the camp, which is where he's at right now with the tent of meeting being away and outside of the camp. But after these things are instituted, he's going to move right to the middle of the camp and the tabernacle will be set up in the middle of Israel. And I just thought God's giving the rules for that to happen. And I thought to myself, if I want God to be living in my life, if, 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 if we are in the people of God and we want God to be right in the middle of our lives, at some level, we need to prepare that place. And God can lead us. He can follow us and protect us. He can be up on Mount Sinai where we can see him and see his work on the, on the earth. He can even be outside of our camp. But if we want God in our lives, there has to be something where we mind what needs to be there for God and what doesn't. And our lives essentially have to be lives of worship or sacrifices of worship for God to do that. And this is consistent throughout the Bible that that's got to happen. So there's this reverence that has to happen that's going on there. So it, it, it reminded me, and, and Steph and I are working through Nehemiah, so I just wanted to open tonight with this passage from Nehemiah and the response of the people that they had when... They've been hauled off to Babylon. These are things that have happened, and they're coming back. And Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest, open the book in sight of all the people. They open up the Bible. And part of that Bible is the book of Leviticus, right? Because the Old Testament is mid-Old Testament. So they're looking at the five uh, Pentateuch books. And they open up the book in sight of all the people, for they were standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, amen, amen, while they're lifting up their hands. So it was, it was the first charismatic service in the history of the world. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And that's before they even read the book, right? That's just the reverence they had for the word of God and their willingness, not only to raise their hands and say, amen, amen, but to bow their heads and submit to what the book says. And I think that's one of the, just the way in which I've been blessed in Leviticus is there is so much in Leviticus where God says, this is what I define as holy. If you want me to live in your camp, this is what I want you to try to make happen amongst the people of Israel. I want you to be holy because I'm holy. So we look for this higher standard for priests, those people that are going to represent God to the people. And in Leviticus 21, that's where we, we show up is God's wrapping up this last kind of portion of the book saying, my priests need to be at a higher standard. And they need to be because they stand in for the people. If they're corrupted with sin, then all the people are going to have problems with their sacrifices working out because the priests themselves are corrupt. And that can't happen. So at the beginning of Leviticus, we saw Aaron's two sons die because they were profaning uh, the, 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 the service or the consecration service. And it's almost like we're mirroring that on the other side of Leviticus, where, where God's saying, don't profane what, what I have for you. So I'm going to start in Leviticus 21. We'll start in verse 1. But listen for that theme kind of coming back full circle here towards as we go on the downward slide to the end of the book. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, none shall defile himself for the dead amongst his people. They represent life as priests, and they shouldn't be messing with dead people. So the priests are going to serve in a lot of roles in the nation of Israel that we've seen throughout Leviticus. They're not only religious priests, but they're also carrying out a law or a civic code that we've seen. They're also the medical doctors of the society, so they carry that out. And they're also like the housing inspectors. If you remember, they went in looking for mold and that sort of thing. So they have all these roles, but this is one role that the priests should not have. They should not be the morticians of the society because the morticians are going to deal with death and the priests are supposed to be dealing with life. Um, so uh, none shall defy himself for the dead among his people. So it's not just touching dead people, but even to be in the same room with them is how uh, the rabbinical priesthood re reads this passage. Except for, verse 2, his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, and also his virgin sister. A non-virgin sister would have her own husband, and that family would then take care of her dead body. Who has no husband, for he may, for her he may defile himself. So when it's your own close family, you can help prepare the body. You can, I mean, obviously that's the intimacy of the family, and God holds that as sacred too. Uh, otherwise, verse 4, the priest shall not defile himself, being a chief man amongst his people to profane himself. So don't be preparing the dead, mourning or burying them. Remember, the burying of the dead was essentially tied to Egyptian religious practice. So again, this is to be separate. If you think of Egypt, remember, they mocked Moses and said, did you bring us out to the desert because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? And it's because Egypt was known for its way that they handled the dead. There were graves everywhere in Egypt, um, including very big pyramid graves uh, that we still have around today. So they're not supposed to get involved with that. The priests of God, of Yahweh, aren't the priests of the dead people, and there isn't going to be this cult of deadness in their society, which I think is a good thing. So to defile them means they'd have to wash and spend a season away from the temple. Remember, defiling here 
is not the same as sinning. It just means that you've got to let go of your worship duties or your priest duties for a season after you've become defiled or unclean. So they're a chief man among their people, and I love the word among there. Again, you have this flat society that God's creating. It's not a chief man above the people. It's a chief man among the people. They're not to lord over people, but they're supposed to live among them and be among them. Verse 5, they shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. This mirrors what we read before. All of these would be separating the Yahweh priests from the priests of, of Baal and the priests of Ra in Egypt and Canaan. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. So they're not supposed to dress up and look like worldly priests. They're supposed to look different and be different. And God's laid that all out in the book of Leviticus. If you want to worship me, here's how to do it. Verse 7. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is to be holy to God. Therefore, you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. So we see that same reasoning there. The wife, of course, anytime people get married, they're going to have an effect on one another. So God is basically asking that, it, or basically telling them it matters who you marry because it's going to impact you over time. Um, there may be a temptation to marry prostitutes, especially coming out of Egypt and coming out of Canaanite religion, where a lot of times people were given to the temple as prostitutes, and when their season was done, they would go off and marry people, carrying with them all that baggage from being a temple prostitute. Um, and God's saying that he doesn't want that practice to go on in Israel. Holy to you here, remember the context is the sons of Aaron. Uh, this is not something for the entire society. This is just for the sons of Aaron, which at this point in town amounts to two people. Uh, and God's basically, but he means by the sons of Aaron, not just those two people, but all the descendants of, the, of Aaron that will be in that priesthood role. They're to be set apart. They're to keep themselves uh, um, true to the system, and they're supposed to be accountable to it. Verse 9 is an interesting verse, and I'm going to take a little time with it. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself playing the harlot, she profanes her father, and she shall be burned with fire. All right? This is one of those verses people struggle with in the Old Testament. But let's kind of break it down a little bit. Uh, first of all, it says, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot. Playing the harlot is a phrase. The word playing in the Hebrew means wanton or already kind of being fed, but continuing to feed on it more, or doing something for yourself. So this isn't somebody being a harlot out of need or out of desperation. Uh, it's someone who's being a harlot because they want to, right? So this is someone that's in open defiance of the sexual practice restrictions that God kind of put on people. Restrictions isn't even the right the word. Expectations, uh, because depending on how you look at it, one would say, oh, there's all these things we can't do, like playing the harlot how restrictive this God is. On the other hand, you're saving yourself from a lot of trouble and a lot of baggage, and a lot of God's law looks like that. It looks like a restriction from the outside, but from the inside, it's actually kind of freedom. Because once, if you do it the way God says to do it, you can do it without the baggage and without the hurt and without the emotional and psychological damage that comes from some of these practices. Um, it's interesting. There's no biblical record of verse 9 actually happening. 
almost all of these laws, as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see example after example of people breaking them. And David breaks like half of them. Uh, so even the most famous people that we're going to see in the Old Testament are going to break a number of the different commandments and laws. But this particular one, we just don't see an example of it. So priest daughters, I think, got the message, and they were the only smart ones in the Bible that didn't go here. Um, and it has something to do, and this is something that kind of got me. I was thinking about Katie when I was reading through this, because I don't want Katie to play the harlot, obviously. Um, but I also think that there's something special here that God would single out the relationship between a dad and her daughter, or dad and his daughter, and that there's something kind of beautiful about that father-daughter relationship that should be caring and valued and elevated. And it's not the first time we've seen the father-daughter relationship represented in the Bible. We saw Caleb with Aksha. We saw Bethuel with Rebecca. We saw Laban with Leah. And there were these kind of things where dads have a tough time letting go of their daughters and want a high, high price for daughters that they value. Um, Nathan's parable to David was about this sheep that was precious and valued uh, and treasured. Um, and this idea of not caring for daughters has been represented in the Bible so far as a, as a sin and as a horrible thing, as we saw with the daughters of Lot. Um, and in Genesis 19 and Ephraim uh, in Gibeah, we're going to see something similar in Judges 19, where those relationships between fathers and daughters have something to do, th something that's precious and can also be corrupted into something that's really horrible. So there's a, an accountability here. Um, there's another piece of here, and I want to get to the daughters of priests, uh, the daughter of any priest, which is kind of a category. And I thought this was an interesting kind of way to look at this. We know that there were women that were practicing as part of the, so the Levites are the priests, right? And the Levites is a tribe of people, half of which are females. So, so far we've seen that the high priest is to be a son of Aaron. And we see the priests that are doing the butchering and lifting up cattle and sheep and cutting them and sprinkling blood, they're all males too. But we've also seen that there were women involved in the, the worship practice of the Old Testament tabernacle system. Namely, we already have Miriam, Moses' sister, who's been a prominent figure, and Zipporah. In Leviticus 22.12, we, we're going to see that they women can participate in eating the priestly food. And you don't eat the priestly food unless you've served in the priesthood somehow or another. So there's no stated duties for women, but we do see that they have this extremely public role where they're eating the holy bread in front of the congregation. So the daughters of priests uh, would have been prior to their coming of age. Women would have had this really public role. Remember, there were women outside the tabernacle door that would, were talking with Moses, and there are women at the gates of the courtyard that are welcoming people. So they must play this role, and again, it doesn't say specifically, but they were hosts, they were ushers, they were mediating, they were part of the worship teams, and they had to be part of this prayer group that sat right outside the door of the tabernacle day and night. So they also gave up their mirrors in Exodus 38.8. Remember to help make the, uh, the basin for washing uh, the, the, the priests as they did their service. And they served at that entrance of the tent of meeting. It's interesting, and we did the mirrors in Exodus 38.8, and you can always go back in the podcast and listen to that one. But mirrors is a word for vision. Uh, and in the, the Hebrew, that word ankh also means life, and an ankh symbol is still something we associate with Egypt. It's a little circular thing on top and a little cross beneath it. 
but it represents life in the Egyptian culture. And when the women gave up that symbol, then they're putting their trust in the life of God instead of in the life of Ra or some Egyptian god. So in Numbers 4.23 and 8.24, we're going to see that, that host service that they're going to provide because they're referred to under almost like a military tour of duty where women Levites had a, a duty that they provided as hosts in the temple. In Ezra 2.65, Nehemiah 7.67, um, there are over 7,000 servants and singers, both male and female, that are serving when they do their count in Nehemiah. There's worship leaders in 2 Chronicles 35.25, and in Judges 11, Jephthah's daughter is given up to be to service in the temple, most people believe. Because remember, he made this promise, the first thing that comes out of my tent, I'll give up. And there's no reference to her death, and she doesn't mourn her death, she mourns her virginity. In other words, she's going to go serve in that temple, and she's going to be um, uh, serving in a way that she's not going to be getting married. She's going to, like a nun, she's going to serve God, and she's going to serve in that temple area as a daughter of the priesthood. So there's expectations of these women and these high-profile women, even though their specific line of duty, we have to kind of sort through the Old Testament to find what that was. But apparently women were given for service as daughters of the Levites. Um, and if they chose to get married, then they would be coming under whoever they married, they would come under that person's household and they'd be part of that household. And Levite women could marry outside the Levite tribe. Um, likewise, non-Levite women could marry Levite priests and then they would be part of that Levite service or priesthood that they would do. At the very least, uh, we know that the Levite women were serving alongside the Levite men, even though there were unique roles for the high priest. And I just wanted to kind of get into that a little bit. Um, and hopefully that's not too far of a detour. But I just thought that was kind of an interesting and important to kind of think that this is one of those spots where we see and notice that there is some definition around the role of women in the priesthood. Verse 10, he was the high priest among his brethren on whose head the anointing oil was poured and, uh, and who is consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Um, we saw this earlier when Aaron's two sons were killed. Remember Moses had to immediately tell Aaron, you're the high priest you are a high priest of God and you're not going to mourn death because you know that in God there is no death. So you don't get to mourn your sons and you get to, you get to like um, not tear your clothes or, or uncover your head or shave your head or anything they would do. It's also cool, and I thought this was neat because here we see this rule. When Jesus is facing the high priest in the book of Matthew chapter 26, verse 65, the high priest hears Jesus basically claim to be God, and the first thing he does is he tears his clothes. And I think it's essential here because the moment the high priest did that, he broke this rule in verse 10. And at that point, technically, he is now unclean, and he's not the high priest anymore. So immediately someone took his place as high priest when he tore his clothes, according to Levitical law. And this is part of what just blows me away in the Bible, that when you look at these small points, when you go through books like Leviticus and you see this, you go read Matthew 26 and you're like, oh my goodness, at that very moment, Israel didn't have a high priest anymore because the high priest tore his clothes. Um, unless, of course, you count that Jesus just became the high priest because he showed up and he took that role. But it's that moment that he did it. And it's this law that God gives to Moses that makes that all legal and everything. Verse 11. 
nor shall he go to hear any dead body, nor defile himself with his father or mother, with his, nor defile himself for his father or mother. I shouldn't read so fast. I get excited about it, and then I start stumbling over words. The high priest has a higher standard than the rest of the priesthood. So where the rest of the priesthood can take care of their immediate family, the high priest doesn't get to even do that. You give yourself to the high priesthood, you do not get to recognize death. You have to understand that in God there is life, and you don't get that earthly role anymore. You have to put it to the side. So the need for the high priest to be a representative of God comes before any personal needs that he has. Jesus, of course, would say, well, Jesus went and touched dead people. The problem with that argument is that when Jesus touched dead people, they came back to life. <laughs> and so when he went into Lazarus or when he raised people, uh, he, he touched them, yes, but they weren't dead when he touched them. They were brought back to life when they touched them. So the high priest is never supposed to do that. Uh, they're not a, immune from being unclean, which is different from almost every pagan religion where the high priest defines what's right and wrong. In this world, the high priest himself can defile himself by tearing his clothes, by touching a dead person, etc. Nor shall he go out, verse 12, of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of anointing oil of his God is upon him. And I love this. I am the Lord. <laughs> I'm the boss, is what God is saying. At this point, you don't get to pick this stuff, even the high priest of Israel. Even when Israel gets to be powerful, even when Israel is the trade center of the world under Solomon, the high priest doesn't have the right or power to change the rules. God is God. And he shall take a wife and her virginity, a widow or divorced woman or defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife, nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. Same rule as the regular priest. Marry a nice Jewish girl is what God's saying uh, and what Jewish moms say for hundreds of years afterwards. Normal priests then had these options, but the high priest did not have uh, options. The reference then is that they have to have this higher standard, even when they get married. And this is one of those verses where the Catholic Church doesn't match up. This idea of not marrying just because you're in the priesthood is an odd idea that's unique to the Catholic tradition. It's not really a biblical tradition. Um, and where they get that out of the Bible is kind of a, is, 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 is a question mark. Uh, and one of those challenges that you would have if you were a Catholic trying to reconcile that with the Bible. Because clearly there's rules for marrying in the Bible amongst the priesthood. Verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach, a blind or lame who has a marred face with any limb too long, a man with a broken foot or a broken hand or as a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye, or eczema, or a scab, or is a eunuch. This is, a, this is an interesting list. The idea of defect in verse 17, any defect, it's not just physical defects. Even though the list goes through physical defects, we're going to see in the coming verses that it also includes moral defects and things that would be wrong. Why the physical things? Uh, why the marred face? Why is that an issue in verse 18? Marred faces are impacted faces, or faces that are distorted in some way, in part because, and especially amongst, if you go east of where they're at right now, the Persians would use marred, disfigured people almost like a circus show in their religious practices. If you were a hunchback or you were uh, 
had a impacted face or you had something weird about you, they would dress you up because it was different and odd and exotic and they would make a show of the person instead of putting the attention on God. And God's going to go the opposite direction, again, from the pagan religions around them. That instead of drawing attention to the priests, he wants the attention to be on God and on that fellowship with God and on the sacrifice. So if you look significantly different, even a broken foot, if you're limping around up on the platform, we don't want the attention on the priests. So those people don't get to serve there. Uh, approaching the bread of his God is a very particular role, which is the public role. It doesn't mean that these folks, if they're Levites, can't serve in a million other ways in the conducting of the tabernacle and the temple. No man, verse 21, of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect should come near the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near the offering of the bread off, to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, so don't exclude him and be weird about this, but the most holy and the, the holy, only he shall not go near the veil nor approach the altar because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I the Lord sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. The descendants of Aaron's are the priests, um, Obviously, there's certain priests that are disqualified from doing this. Interestingly, the people who come to make offerings, there's no restrictions. So this isn't, the idea here isn't that we're going to take people that have been born with a defect and say that they can't eat the bread or something like that or can't make the offerings. We're just saying that they can't be on that stage doing this work for God because they'll take attention away from God. At least, again, that's how most people who comment on the Bible, the rabbinical traditions have all interpreted these verses. And I think it helps, and I don't think it's an accident, that God put in there that he may eat the bread of his God, which means he sits with the Levites and eats that bread and eats the meal. And remember, they would eat that meal out in front of everybody. So it's not that they can't be there or be part of it or do that. Uh, another uh, commentary on this is that those defects would often get in the way of doing the job. If you have a broken foot, you're going to have a hard time holding a bull in place while you kill it. So there's certain things that would make it so that they actually couldn't carry out the duties due to physical limitations, which then makes it more hazardous uh, and makes it more dangerous. And if you think of all the blood around on the marble and whatnot, it could be slippery and you need to have good footing and there's all sorts of things like that. Thus, you can't have one leg that's longer than another. He may eat the bread, they get cared for, he shall not approach the veil, uh, they're still able, to, again, to do all those other things. They can be judges, they can be medicals, they can be house inspectors, they can play on the worship team, just not the altar and the veil. Part of the reason of this, and again, just don't take my word for it, um, I think there's a great verse on this in Hebrews 8, and really it comes to the point that what we're supposed to see with the people that approach the veil and the people that do the sacrifices is a shadow of heavenly things. We're supposed to see what heaven is going to look like. And in heaven, a lot of those defects are healed, right? So Hebrews 8, verse 4 and 5 says, There are priests that offer gifts according to the law. They do that particular job. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. Right here in what we're reading, God's admonishing Moses about this that those priests should be a shadow of heavenly things. They should look like heaven is going to look. And then, of course, we get that theme that keeps coming back, I, the Lord, sanctify them. 
So if a person has a blemish, they don't go near the veil, but the Lord still sanctifies them. So it's a, it's an interesting line. And, and a lot of times when you talk about faith with people, they want to go to black or white issues, either this or this, either you hate everyone or you love everyone. And there's no kind of balance between how we treat people when it comes to justice and grace. And the Bible walks that line all the time. So this is a limitation for a certain group of people, but God also sanctifies them and they're allowed to eat the holy bread, right? So it's not just to exclude them, kick them out of the camp, ostracize them, be bullies to them. There's nothing like that. It's just that there are certain limitations that are going to be there. So even for the priests, there are these limitations. And even amongst the priests, they can profane what they're doing. And in profaning things, they'll be kicked out of the priesthood. But that's true of all of us. We've all done things where we can profane stuff. There's no one good, no, not one. They've all gone aside. They've all together become filthy. There's no one that doeth good, no, not one, Psalm 14.3. Or Paul quotes that Psalm in Romans 3.12. They have all gone out of the way. They've all together become unprofitable. There is no one that does, does good, no, not one. Okay, that's a depressing message. But let's keep reading. Leviticus 22. Put on the eyes of, just for a second, as we go through chapter 22, skim through it real quick. But if you look at this, we see a ser the last little set of laws these rules that have to happen for priests, and they seem really disjointed. And I, I had to read through this two, three times. And of course, every time you read a chapter of the Old Testament, if you're stuck on it, you say, where do I see Jesus in this? And when you put on the eyes of a post-Messianic reader, this chapter makes a lot more sense. In fact, it's an amazing chapter. And you look at this and go, wow. And the whole point of what we do for this Bible study is I want to end every night with us understanding what the chapter says. And if we can accomplish that each week when we meet, then we're working our way through the whole Bible with an understanding of at least what the Bible says. We can wrestle with that if we want to. We can submit to it if we want to. We can have different readings of it if we want to. That's not the point. But the point is to just start at a point where we see what it says and we understand the words. And I think that idea of, yes, this is laws for priests at the first level, but this is also rules for Messiah at another level. And that provides, I think for me, a really interesting read on this chapter. So I'm going to try to give both perspectives. Verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. Say to them, whoever of all your children, descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I'm the Lord. Remember, we just came out of the last chapter, and there weren't chapters when this was written, where they just said um, that this could be, that we have these kind of issues of they can't approach the veil and that sort of thing, but now they brought it out. It doesn't matter if you have a defect or not. Anybody that comes before the altar that's profane or unclean is defiling themselves and wrecking the whole system. So that now we broaden it out to everybody in the priesthood. And like I said before, we've all sinned and fallen short. So there has to be this higher standard for priests. How do you even get there? So it reinforces that importance of purity in the priesthood. And they were supposed to be examples for Israel. At best then, God gives generations of grace 
in order to have this Levitical priesthood. Because if we've all fallen short of the standard of God, and there's still a priesthood, and the priesthood isn't supposed to fall short, God's giving a lot of atonement and grace to these priests to even have the system, but it leaves us with a couple options. If the goal is to be perfect, and no one can be perfect, you have to reconcile that in one of two ways, I think, maybe a third. But the first way on the earthly sense is if I'm supposed to be perfect and I can't be perfect, that makes a, a, an attitude of despair. And that's the danger of this kind of name it and claim it theology that's kind of out there and popular in America right now. If I'm supposed to be perfect and never wrestle with sin, then I discover I can't do it, then I get despair. The second option, I think, is to have pride, where you say, I am good enough, I am holy, which is a lie. Um, because if we've all fallen short and we continue to fall short in certain ways, you either suffer from pride or despair, or a third option, you're saved by grace. And you come to an understanding that you're not perfect, but Jesus atones for that, and then you can wake up the next morning, his mercies are new each day, and you move forward. So I want to kind of walk through this just a little bit. And look for this theme as we go. There's a truth in that God establishes the worship, the sacrifices, the law, and a moral framework. And that framework is true. We are sinners. We need atonement. There is atonement. And it explains what God says is holy. Jeremiah 17.1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. This Levitical system is written with a pen of iron. It's true. It's something you can rely on. And if we start in truth, we can we can deal with that. If we start in a lie, like I'm good, pride, or I'm no good, despair, those lies both lead to kind of a dead end. But if we start with truth, then we can move forward. Number two, the laws are understandable. It's clear and in sight, but it's not. it's a little bit out of reach. So there's nothing that we've read in Leviticus, I think, that's hard to understand. Don't do this, try to do this, you don't get to eat shrimp. And that's super clear. And fluffy will atone for you. And all these things are understandable. Um, there, and, and there's a truth behind it, and it's understandable. Nehemiah 8.3, Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning till midday, and before the men and women who could under, to, and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I'll go forward five verses. So they're reading this book of the law, Nehemiah and Ezra. And remember, all the people shouted amen, and they fell on their faces, submitting to what they're about to hear. So they read it, they try to hear it, and then Nehemiah 8.8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense of it and help people understand the readings. This is interesting. They're doing Bible studies, and they would have been going through Leviticus. So they'd read a chapter, and then they would say, does everybody understand what we're reading? And then they would walk around, and there would be people literally going around the camps, making sure that everybody understood what was being read. God's law is understandable. God's law is true. Number three, God's law is freaking impossible. There's just no way to do it. So we're stuck and we come to that reality that we can't do it. And the prophets remind them of this throughout the Old Testament. Daniel 9, 13, as it's written in the law of Moses, all the disaster has come upon us, yet we haven't made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Look for this theme as we go. God's law is true. God's law is understandable. And God's law is impossible. 
There's a fourth piece here too, and I'll, I want to get to that as we finish tonight. And I'll give you a, a hint right now. There's also redemption, right? So that's the whole framework that the whole Bible is going to, here's how we worship God. We do it within that framework. And anything outside of that framework is not what God wants. And when the priests try to add to that or take away from that, they profane the whole process. So all of this is set up to get those things kind of clearly communicated. God is true. God is understandable. Humans can't do it on their own. There is redemption. So remember that as we go through this. Verse 4, whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has discharge shall not eat the holy offerings until he's clean. Whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has an emission of semen Whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever is the cleanness, uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean till evening and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. All of these things are setting them apart from other pagan religions where those sorts of things happen in practice. I was reading about Babylonian recycling religion theory. So this idea that there's life and there's death and there's life and there's death. So they worship things that go through life-death cycles, like snakes and spiders. So there'd be these Babylonian temples filled with spiders because they die and then they rebirth a billion of them. And snakes that would shed their skins, so the priests would dress themselves with these snake skins, right? And have snakes crawl all over them in the hope that the snake could give death to its old skin while they were holding it. That would be a holy moment for them. And God says, ooh, that's just nasty. Don't do any of that. And go take a bath if you think that's cool. Verse 7, And when the sun do goes down, he shall be clean. Afterwards, he may eat the holy offerings. We're not going to starve these priests to death because it is his food. Whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat that. No roadkill. To define himself with it, and I am the Lord, they, there, they shall therefore keep my ordinance, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby if they profane it. I, the Lord, sanctify him. It makes you wonder what Aaron's two sons were doing when God killed them. Because here we are back on that topic with the same word profane in verse 9 that was used back when Aaron's sons died. He can eat it. These things, these little, it wasn't meant to be this legalistic system. So if a creeping thing touches you, you're not kicked out of the priesthood. You just need to take a day off and wash yourself and then come back and, and make sure you're not playing in the mud tomorrow. The sun goes down, they take the day off. Remember, sundown is the start of their new day. So they're basically taking one day of a break. And it comes back to this idea, and I like this, a, a post-messianic view. For all of us, if we're a holy priesthood, when we screw up, wash it off and start a new day. And I love this message. This is amazing from that perspective. If there's a new day, you get a new start. And in the priesthood, new day, new start. And if you make a mistake or you screw up and it's not this willful, intentional defiance of God, the new day is wonderful. Ecclesiastes 11.7, light is sweet. How pleasant to see a new day dawning. Isaiah 58.8, then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will heal quickly. Remember if they had scabs, they couldn't be part of it. Your wounds will heal quickly and your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. God has your back when you do these things. Each day for God is a complete separate 
unit of time. And the idea of the day as a unit of time is consistent. Luke 11, Ezekiel 45, 23, Acts 2, 47. Here, I'll read you one. This is Psalm 96, 2. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Each day, proclaim the good news that he saves. And when we fall short, we don't abide in our failures. We start new every day. And this, these verses four through nine, you look at it through a messianic lens and start saying, okay, how can I be a better priest and worship better? One way to do that is don't get bogged down in your sin and don't stop proclaiming the gospel because you had a bad day. Wake up the next morning, receive his mercies. Don't abide in your failure, abide in your new starts. And I don't think that that, you know, part of this too, I think sometimes that attitude of moving on, a critique of that is to say, well, then you're, you're, you're living in a fantasy world and you're not abiding in your pain long enough. And I don't think Christians pretend that our afflictions aren't real. Um, I think mistakes stick in us like gall. The difference is we have hope to move on, right? So it's not like the, there isn't pain when we make a mistake or that we don't feel that we've betrayed God when we sin, right? We're real about those things, but we move on from those things. A new day, a new start. Lamentations 3.9 captures this idea really well. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. I can recall it to my mind, but therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions, they fail not. There's an old hymn on that too. It makes me bawl every time. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Not our faithfulness. We fail. But here's the truth. There's redemption. God's faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. soul therefore I have hope in him. Our failings remind us that we should have hope in God and not in ourselves. New day, new start. And that new start means that we need to attempt holiness each day that we live. So the priest can bear sin for it and die. God will police his priests. And the ultimate consequence of walking away from holiness is death. That's the consequence. We're all going to die. The only difference is, will we die in our sin or will we die trusting in God's great faithfulness in what we do? I, the Lord, sanctify him in the same way that the Lord does the punishment, the Lord does the sanctification. Here it is again. There's the truth. It's understandable. It's hard and impossible to do it on our own, but God will sanctify us. There is redemption. The writer is telling us a story here that's going to get played out. And the Hebrews are going to try this in all sorts of ways to get it right on their own. They're going to have the sacrificial system and the priests are going to screw up and, and eventually become overbearing with their legalism. Then they're going to get judges. And then the, the Hebrews are going to see that the judges water down the law and they're not even reading the Bible anymore. It's all watered down. Then they're going to get kings. And the kings become authoritarian and start taxing their, their wealth and their, their physical material means. And then they're going to get prideful idol worshipers throughout their whole country. I mean, this is the history of Israel, right? Priests, judges, kings, idol worshipers, Babylon. They get kicked out and they try to reboot a couple times. But the Jews will find that they are left with failed priests, failed priests, failed judges, failed kings. And they're desperately looking for one priest, one judge, and one king that won't fail them. So the prophets at the end of the Old Testament start looking for Messiah, right? 
New day, new start, but man, it'd be nice to have a priest, a judge, or a king that just didn't fail all the time. And this is what God said to Abraham back in the day. I love this. Genesis 28, 22, 8, and Abraham said, my son, he's talking to Isaac as he's about to sacrifice him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Do you think Abraham even knew how prophetic that was? So the two of them went up the hill together. And then in 22:14, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide as it is to this day, the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord promised the sacrifice of his only son, and he's going to give the promise, of, he's going to fulfill that promise literally. I'll keep going with chapter 22, verse 10, Leviticus 10, 22, 10. No outsider shall eat the holy offering. You're not in the kingdom, you don't get to eat it. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. But, verse 11, if the priest buys a person with his money, he can eat it. And one who is born in his house, and one who is born in his house may eat the, his food. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she can't eat the offer, holy offerings. But if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child and has returned to her father's house, house like in her youth, she can eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. Again, from a Levitical point of view, it's like, oh, okay, we can do that. From a symbolic, from a messianic point of view, no stranger can eat the food of God. God invites us to a wedding feast, and unless you are part of the household, you don't get to eat it. You can't be part of the wedding feast if you're not in the family. But, verse 11, if the priest buys a person, with his money. The word for money there is resources, material gain. They didn't have dollar bills with George Washington on them. They had resources. And if you redeemed someone and bought them, then they could eat at your feast. And that person, we've already seen this law, right, in Exodus and in Leviticus, that you could a slave could become a member of your household, just like your heir, just like your son. This is amazing. This theology is <clears throat> the messianic theology of Jesus. The priest's daughter, there's a whole discussion on women here too. If the women are part of your family, they can eat it. If they're not part of your family, they can't. So the idea is which family do we want to be a part of? <clears throat> it's a special feast that God's going to set out. So we should stand out that God, God commands his residence here of the person, and he doesn't say what kind of stranger we're talking about. It doesn't say if it's a national membership. It doesn't say if it's a Levitical membership. It basically says to these priests that it's got to be in your family. So if we hope to be in God's family, then God needs to have a high priest that does this role of high priest for us, that gives a sacrifice and redeems us so that we can be part of his family, and that's Jesus. We should then seek to follow God's commands. This is a key law. If there's any priest, especially a high priest, that buys someone and they're part of the household, like in his, uh, Exodus 21.6, you get your ear nailed to the doorpost. They can then eat of the same holy table as the kingdom of God. I just want to sit on this point all night, but I know we got to get through more verses. But I just love that idea. From a messianic point of view, verses 10 through 13, 13 set it out crystal clear. You're either part of the priest's family or you're not part of the priest's family. Take a pick. So what do you do with outsiders then? You can either push them away and say you can't be part of this or you invite them in and make them part of your family. We, if we want to be like Christ, should look at how do we make people part of our family. 
and and in the church, the early believers called each other's brothers and sisters because they saw this family concept all the way back in Leviticus and consistent throughout the Bible. So they started to treat each other like brothers and sisters. Priests in the time of Abraham, before this Levitical system, have to swear, and the Lord has sworn and will not repent that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110.4, still in the Old Testament. David's writing about a priest. Remember I said they were pining for a priest that wouldn't screw up? And they were looking for a priest that was prior to the Levitical system that would be just a priest because they love the Lord, not because they're born into the Levitical family. So the priests of the Melchizedek were not Levites, yet they were priests that served God, and that's who Abraham went to after the battle. So when Jesus is nailed to a post as a sacrifice for sin, spending his own life as a redeeming purchase for anyone that would be part of him, he serves as a priest, not as a Levite, but in the order of Melchizedek. Just like the Psalms said, not the New Testament, the Psalms. Jesus' high priest has purchased you, and he's bought you to be part of the family. He washes you with the water, he's atoned and bought you with his own blood. And then you get to eat at his table. That's the plan. This is the whole thing right here in Leviticus, Luke twenty-two thirty, 30. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking to his disciples. This is the goal for my people that believe in me. I want you to eat at my table. All right, verse 14, I'll keep going. And if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally, oops, I ate the offering. I don't know how that would happen. But if it does happen, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings. For I, the Lord, will sanctify them. That's an interesting set of verses. We know that profaning things is bad. We know that Israel will profane the table. Malachi 1.12 Israel, you have profaned my table in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even the meat is contemptible. So there's this idea that the table of God has no yeast, sinless bread. There's a holy offering on it. It's been anointed. It's set aside as sacred. God alone sanctifies it. But we're going to have priests that have sin all the time and they're going to build guilt. I honestly would love in the discussion afterwards if someone could tell me how does a man eat the holy offering unintentionally? Like, how does that even happen? And it's an interesting thing that God puts here that we don't really see any follow-up in the Bible. I think in heaven, we're going to find out where it happened. The only thing that comes close is when David ate the showbread, but he knew what he was eating when he did it. Um, and he, of course, reimburses. So the idea is if you're going to eat that, you're going to reimburse it. And none of that eating reimbursing actually profanes it because God sanctifies it. So here's this situation where it happens. Unless you look at it through a messianic point of view, right? So Jesus fulfills this really well if you look at it. So Jesus, remember in John 6, 51 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give will be my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Can you unintentionally pretend that you've eaten of the bread of Jesus? If you're born into a Christian family and you go to church every Sunday, could you be eating from that table unintentionally without intent, without making it your own, without doing it with will and purpose and sacrifice in your heart? Absolutely. So if that happens, you're not going to profane the church by doing that, by the way. 
You're not a problem. But God's going to want you to pay that back. If you want to get on God's good terms, you need to then give something back. And from a messianic perspective, you don't get to bear the guilt of God in that kind of way because God's going to sanctify his church. And you think, oh, well, that could happen in a messianic sense. If Jesus says he's the bread and you accidentally eat the bread, how are you going to do that? Verse 16, or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass. It's not going to be something where you're guilty of trespass when you do that, but it also doesn't redeem you. You're not going to profane anything. You're not guilty of anything, but that's not going to save you alone. And there's an implication here that it's not a good thing to do. So this is, a, I think, in a messianic sense, this is a real kind of warning to anyone that would unintentionally be eating of the table and partaking of communion and being part of the church, but just doing it because you're going through the motions or because you feel like you have to. You're not wrecking the church. You're not guilty of trespass, but you're also not doing yourself any good. Stop faking it, right? Uh, verse 17, there are offerings that get accepted and there's other ones that don't get accepted. And the Lord said to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them. So we're broadening out now. This isn't just priests. This is the children of Aaron and it's to all the children of Israel. So everyone in the kingdom. And they say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers sacrifice for any of his vows or any of his free will offerings, which they offer to the Lord as burnt offerings, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, from the goats. You're thinking, we've already heard this. Why, why is God repeating himself? Why does this go with accidental eating habits? And how does this all fit? So clearly the priests are going to make atonement sacrifice. God forgives the sin. The priests do this atonement ritual thing. And we get this concept um, that humans don't do the atonement. Maybe you could pull that out of here, right? Um Whatever man of the, who offers sacrifices for any of his works, they offer it to the Lord. Um, you could pull out of verse 19 that this has to be of your own free will, that free will is the big idea here, that anybody who gives a sacrifice, it should be free will. It should be this voluntary thing. You shouldn't be guilting people into it. You shouldn't be putting thermometers on the wall, telling people we need this much. It should just be something people give, um, and it should be without blemish. There shouldn't be markings on it. It shouldn't be your leftovers uh, from your cattle, your sheep, your goats. It doesn't really even mention pigeons and turtle doves, which we know are also part of the list. But there's this idea that God forgives the sin, priests make the sacrifice. Or you could look at this through a, a, a messianic perspective, right? That we see just over and over and over again this idea that only God forgives, not priests. So even if Jesus were a priest, he doesn't forgive people unless he's God. And then Jesus shows up in Matthew 9 too. So they've lived hundreds of years with this idea, right? This idea that is persistent throughout the book of worship, Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 420, 4.26, 4.31, 4.35, 5.10, 5.13, 5.16, 5.18, 6.7. And then I got tired of looking them all up. Priests do the work. God does the sanctification. And then Jesus shows up. And he says in Matthew 9, 2, he says to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. I just like the idea that he called him son, right? Because uh, uh, God did not talk with a southern drawl. But son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. From a messianic perspective, this idea 
right? That when you give sacrifices, it has to be free will and God's going to do this work. They have to be offered to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes up and starts forgiving people. You can see why the Pharisees got upset with any person saying that they're going to do the forgiving. So there's this repetition of this idea over and over and over again. Offerings are free will. They're without blemish. They're from your own herd. God does everything else. So that's the condition of it. It's not the priest's job to forgive or anything like that. The priest's job is to make sure the offerings are voluntary, to make sure they're without blemish, and to make sure that they're giving of their own herd. That's the priest's job. And God does everything else. Just a thought. Here's another one of these weird things. Whatever has a defect, don't offer it, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. These are sacrifices that aren't accepted. And whoever offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it has to be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect. And again, the word perfect there isn't perfection. It means that it's a suitable animal. It's, it's perfect in the regard of this would be a good breeding animal for your crops. There's nothing wrong with it. Verse 22, those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, um, you shall not offer them to the Lord nor make an offering of fire by them to the altar on the Lord. Same standards, by the way, for humans that we just read about. So even the animals that come up should not be things where you look at the animal and go, oh, they're giving up their, their lame animals. Verse 23, either a bull or a lamb or that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow, it should not be accepted. So there's some exceptions. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut. You shall not, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. Nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and the defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. <laughs> so if a foreigner gives you something or you get animals from a foreigner's herd, those animals can't get used for God's kingdom. So in the same way that he wants priests to marry good Jewish women, he wants people to offer good Jewish animals. Um, and you can't re-gift a gift from a foreigner um, that you don't want. So this prevents them from a motivation for war, where you could go and steal crops and herds and cattle. Uh, but there's no motivation on this ground to go and steal animals from other tribes because they're not accepted as sacrifices. The offerings have to be good stock. They're not cast-offs. They're not the animals that somebody else gave to Goodwill. Um, they are prob they're coming from your own tribe, and they're perfectly good animals. This, by the way, gets abused by priests. From a messianic perspective, this idea of finding obvious visual problems with an animal um, is exactly what the priests during Jesus' time, they've gone way further with this, and they've started to abuse this. Because any animal that people brought in from their own herd the priest would find something wrong with it and then offer them a very expensive, perfect animal that they had bred and they were making money off of this. And they were had money changers in the temple courtyards that it would help people exchange their money so that they could do this with their animals. And as people learned the priests would do this, they stopped bringing their own animals from their own herd and they started to just pay the priests to buy an animal when they got to the tabernacle. This abuse of power, this abused system, wrecked the whole process it's part of what jesus got upset about and why god spends five verses on this here in the last part of leviticus 
it's one of our parting thoughts. Don't have animals with scabs. Um, but it becomes this kind of thing because it's emphasized here. It builds up into a historical narrative where Jesus then has something to say to the priests when he arrives. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a bull or sheep or goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother. From the eighth day and thereafter, it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Interestingly enough, the eighth day is when they circumcised men in the Hebrew society too. So, Frankly, I think this is kind of merciful. A little baby calf gets to be with its mom for seven days before it goes off to be sacrificed. This, I think, protects the mom a little bit too because there isn't this kind of breach. So there's a respect for animals here in some way, shape, or form. It's, an, again, an odd verse. Whether it's a cow or a ewe, don't kill her and her young on the same day. And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. On the same day it shall be eaten. You shall leave none of it until morning. I'm the Lord. So there's some animal mercy here, a little time for nursing, a little time for connecting. Um, an odd verse all by itself. In verse 31 it says, Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I'm the Lord, which seems to be the summative statement of that passage. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you ask what it's there for, right? So therefore, you shall keep my commandments. The therefore goes right to this thing about animals and when you kill them. And again, they emphasize the free will aspect for it. So these actions then are done for no other apparent reason other than just the concern for the, the animal psychological health or the symbolism of it in some way, shape, or form. So actions get done not to earn something but they get done simply out of obedience therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them i'm the lord this is the expectation of god do his commandments so in a sense god's making rules that don't really have a moral sense so what difference would it make if i killed the calf on the eighth day or the 15th day or the third day right what difference does it make what does it mirror and where does it have the reason we do these things is because god's made a commandment and if he commands me, you just do it. And his burden is not heavy. It's very light, right? This isn't a hard thing to follow. You just wait till day eight. If you have a, a calf that's healthy and good and ready for sacrifice, it's the first one born in the spring. And you want to give your first fruits and bring that in as your offering, your grain offering or your, or your peace offering. That's fine. Do it on the eighth day. It's not a hard thing to follow, but you do it because it's God's commandment and you perform them. John says, 1 John verse 5, <laughs> this idea of burdensome and how easy these commandments are. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him also begot, loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. If you're, if you're following Christ, you're born again in Christ. And anyone who's born in, again in Christ is going to love other people that are born again in Christ. By this we know the love of the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments... For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John's not talking about random commandments. He's talking about the commandments of Jesus Christ, the commandments we've seen here in Leviticus. You just do what God tells you to do, because he's God. I am the Lord. And he said, I've redeemed you, and here's how to respond. And I love how John says, and, it's, and these commandments, they're not burdensome. They're not boundaries that are going to stop you from some better life somewhere else. 
These are things that are going to just show God that you love him, especially in these things about what day you should kill the calf on or not. It's just your way to say, God, I love you. And if you said kill the calf on the eighth day, I'll just kill him on the eighth day. I think that's why verse 31 is so important in that particular passage is because it tells us why we're reading about when to kill a calf. If that's the big important thing to end on, the point is it's, I think, it's not the big important thing. It's just a little thing. And you do it and you perform it because God said so. If you love God, you do what he said. Verse 32, you shall not profane my holy name. That's the flip side of the coin. But I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I, the Lord, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. It's almost like we're done with the book of Leviticus, but we're not. After this particular passage, we're going to see all the festivals, right? So we've wrapped up the law part of Leviticus, and now we're going to get to these festivals where we celebrate and remember God for the next few chapters. But there seems to be a theme in these last few verses that summarize all of Leviticus. That's why I did the context at the beginning tonight, that there's this idea that God's person, God's name, God's sanctification, and God's redemption are essential. And we see this in these last verses, verse 31, I am the Lord. God's person is relevant. God's name, verse 32, don't profane his name. God will do the sanctifying at the end of verse 32, and God will bring us out of the land of Egypt, verse 33. And to these people, that was their redemption. That was their purchase. So we keep his commands because we want God to be among us. For God to move into our camp, we just do what he says. And from a post-Messianic view, that idea is really clear. You want God to live in your life. He might, he might have a holy name and he might be God and, and he might have sanctified you and he might have bought you and redeemed you. But if there's no reaction to that, there's no relationship to that, right? So those things are true. They're understandable. And they're, they're, they're something that you may look at the law and think this is a little out of reach. But if you ignore those commands, you're profaning God's name. The opposite of that is to love God and be, have God live among you. And that's kind of the, the option. I, I wouldn't call it a dualism, but there's two options. Live with God and have God live with you or don't live with God and, and God will not live with you. So the next that we come up are these priests. And, and we see the core instructions in the book of Leviticus. And as we're kind of getting to this point in the book, this is how it all works and how it all fits together. And you look at all these laws, and as you go through Numbers and Deuteronomy, there'll be some additions to those and some added ones. But essentially, all of the law of God is not hard. It's not difficult. It's fairly straightforward. It's, you might even say it's, it's fairly non-dramatic uh, because you live a peaceful life and you carry out the life with your family and you're faithful to people and you don't have to run from people when you just stole their stuff. Uh, in, there isn't a lot of drama in this life. It's a light burden. And that's why Jesus said, the Pharisees have burdened you with all these laws that were never in the Old Testament. They've made up a bunch of garbage that you're supposed to do and their yoke is heavy. But my burden is light. My burden doesn't weigh much. And that's what John was saying in his book too. So, I want to take just a couple minutes, and as we get into the feast, for me, they're just the uh, just this glorious way to end this book. Like, if you do all the things we just read up to this point in the book, you are living with God in the Levitical system, and God's living with you, and that's the end of it. But then these feast celebrations come, the, the, the table that we get to eat from, 
And this is a great place to kind of give a huge overview to Leviticus. And I don't know if you noticed it, but the entire book, and I think this stuff's cool, not just because I'm a geek, but it, for me, it shows me how non-human the writing really is and how just either Moses was brilliant, and I'll take that as he's an inspired guy, or there is a structure to this book that is stunning and, and amazing, and it's not hard for me to see that God's had his hand in writing it. So look at the whole book if you could. And I'll run through it real quick. Chapters 1 through 5 started with the five basic sacrifices. We're going to end the book in chapters 22 through 27 with the seven feasts of Israel. So you have the, the five sacrifices and the seven feasts at the front and the end of the book. And if you get into the number stuff at all, five is the number for um, perfection. And seven is the, the um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. I'll get back. No, five is the, <laughs> five is the number of salvation. Seven is the number of perfection. And 12, if you put them together, is God's kingdom. So the sacrifices save you. The feasts are the perfection of all of this. And you do these together, and that's how God wants to design his kingdom. Now, the numbers may have those meanings because of the book of Leviticus, and that's part of why Hebrews gave those meanings to those words. But remember, in the Hebrew language, uh, there is this um, gematria, or the, where the number itself has a, a meaning in the word, too. So when you look at these kinds of things, that Leviticus begins with salvation, ends with perfection, and it is the design for the entire kingdom of God, it all fits and works. I don't think Moses was that smart. I think that's something that you see after the book is written. Chapters 6 through 8 show all the Levitical procedures for sacrifices. With a little dab in chapter 6 that goes back to the sacrificial rule. On the other flip side, chapters 21 and 22 that we just got done reading are rules for the priests and how they shall live with a little bleed over of sacrificial rule in chapter 22. Chapters 11, all children are born into sin, right? The rules on that. And chapter 20, there are judgments for particularly destructive sinful behaviors. And it says again and again, their blood is on their hands. You have this balance of blood on either side of the book. So the priests are consecrated 9 through 10. And in 20 through 22, there's this, eye of, of this idea of the people are sinful where the priests are consecrated. It goes on the other side too. Chapters 12 through 15 tell us how to eat how to deal with lepers, and how to take baths. Chapters 17 through 19 review the hardline rules for blood, life, sexual behaviors, and the commandments that we should live by or view the Ten Commandments. So there's these rules for life that come on either side. And then right in the middle of those themes is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The whole book is in chiastic form and has balancing topics on either side, progressively coming to the middle with a singular topic of there is a day of atonement in the middle of all these rules we're supposed to follow in the middle of the priesthood, in the middle of people and how they should live. There's atonement for both the priests and the people and it all balances out and it's bookended by the sacrifices and the feasts that this is how we're going to do our kingdom. And this is how we're going to have our priests operate in the kingdom. And this is how the people are going to live in the kingdom. And I'm going to, God Almighty is going to atone to, for the people of Israel and take care of them. I see that kind of balance 
and it's stunning. It keeps going with some of these things. Um, most notably, uh, in chapters 9 and 10, you have two of the priest's sons that die, and two of them live to serve. In, uh, in the pieces we just read, there are judgments for people that live one way, and there is a life for people who live another way because God is holy and that's why we should be holy. And there's the holiness or there's the profaning. It's an either or situation. And on Yom Kippur, that's all represented by one goat that dies and one goat that's going to live. There's a choice to make. Live or die. Live with God or live outside of God. And that atonement being in the middle makes this book not only a wonderful book for here's how you can worship God, but it also structures a life with Christ that isn't that tough. I don't struggle that much with the Ten Commandments, and most of us don't, uh, that are generally trying to seek out and work for God. And those trespasses, those mistakes we make, God will sanctify us. God will take care of us. And we see that here in chapter 22, And but we've seen it all through Leviticus as a consistent theme. Be holy because I'm holy. Wake up tomorrow morning and give it a shot. You had a bad day today? Wake up tomorrow. His mercies are new every day. And in the middle of the book is this idea of atonement. When we come back next week, we'll get to the feasts, which are the celebration of all these things. They're the way God wants his people to remember that this is the relationship with God that he has. Frankly, Steph and I were noting that over, <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday. Every Bible study we're doing, what we're in at church, what we're in at church on Wednesday nights, what Steph and I are doing Bible studies on, Bible studies we have with other people, it all comes back to the same set of ideas that God wants to live with us. He wants to move his presence into our camp and he wants to abide with us. And that's the whole purpose of the God's plan. It has been from Genesis 1-1 and it's going to get resolved by the end of time in Revelation. And that's the purpose of it. So Leviticus just kind of lays that all out. Again, it isn't a narrative book, but it is this kind of plan for God and what he wants for our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you that you spoke to Moses, that you gave Moses a plan for your people, uh, that Moses obediently wrote that down and shared it with Aaron and with the people of Israel, that there was an entire nation of people that bore witness to what you told them to do and got to hear it for themselves and got to hear it through Moses um, and got to hear it through the priests for hundreds of years. Those priests were teaching the people and running around making sure people understood the law with each generation, Lord. We just thank you that your word was kept holy by these people so that it would be here for us to read today. So we thank you for the Jewish people and what they've done. We thank you for the blessing that you bring into our lives just as a community and as a family of Christ. Lord, that we can call each other brothers and sisters because we've all been bought, we've all been redeemed, and we're all part of the family. Uh, Lord, we just love that idea. Thank you for that. And Lord, we ask for, I ask for each people in the, each person in this Bible study, Lord, help us to not beat ourselves up over failings and sin. That's not the point of Leviticus and it's not the point of this book. Help us to look to you for our hope because you will sanctify us and stop trying to do it on our own. Lord, if there's someone in this group that has failed or fallen into sin or made a mistake that they're just beating themselves up over, Lord, I want to pray against that. May your Holy Spirit just bring a spirit of hope and redemption to their hearts. You haven't called us to be children of sin. You've called us to be your children and we should seek out your holiness. So I pray they rest on that tonight and they wake up tomorrow morning with a new heart that you have put a new soul in them and you have uh, birthed a holiness or a desire for holiness that supersedes anything this world has to offer. That your purity is just better 
than anything this world has to give. And right now, Lord, this world has a lot of anxiety and troubledness and fear and anxiousness to give us. And Lord, it's just not not paying off. It doesn't serve our hearts and our soul. So help us to be people of hope and joy and concern and compassion and respect because you've put that spirit in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.